0: Welcome to Personally Invested. I'm your host, Dave Richardson. Today, we check in for our regular update from Eric Lascelles, the chief economist at RBC Global Asset Management. Eric's recently written a piece on protectionism, and we'll focus on that at the end of the broadcast after we take a scan around the world, taking a look at the global economy and particularly what's happening in the United States right now with interest rates dropping and the impact that that has on Canada And the rest of the world. As always with Eric, it is a fast paced, energetic, and interesting discussion about the global economy. And again, his great paper on protectionism. We'll post the links for you. Enjoy, Eric. So, Eric, welcome to Personally Invested again. Uh, We had planned to have you on every quarter. Uh, but the glamorous life of the chief economist has made it very difficult. And, and of course, the glamorous life of the podcast host has made it difficult for us to, to connect for our last quarter. So we're six months out from, from your last visit. Uh, first of all, how are things going?
1: Just fine. Yes, still, still a skeleton crew, but uh, pumping out the research. We think we're on top of what's happening in markets and and the economy. And so, yeah, we're we're still alive.
0: And and we just got the summer global investment outlook. Of course, you're a key part of uh, of that at uh, Global Asset Management. And we're going to get to uh, your new uh, your new thought piece, uh, your paper on protectionism, which is just fantastic. And we'll we'll talk about that at the tail end. But. Uh, from from where you were, your your thoughts were if you can recall from from 6 months ago <laughs> Uh, what do you you think the key things that are happening in the global economy that uh, that investors need to think about right now? Right. Well, gosh,
1: I mean, six months ago, there were a lot of headwinds in place, weren't there? And so markets were pretty nervous and protectionism was actively mounting and growth was slowing quite considerably. And so it was a little bit of a a scary place to operate. Don't let me pretend we're in perfect tranquility right now, but let's acknowledge at a minimum that central banks have come to the rescue it would seem. And so hopefully we can talk a little bit about that. But the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, some others having pivoted away from tightening toward easing greatly pleasing markets, perhaps helping to stabilize growth over time. And so that's a big shift, I think. Uh, The protectionism story hardly fully resolved and something we'll talk about in detail a little bit later, but we've reached perhaps a a form of stasis there. We're not seeing active deteriorations, which seem to be happening there for a while, particularly with regard to the US and China. And maybe that leaves then, at least as as an initial highlight, uh, the growth story. And so let's acknowledge global growth has continued to slow over the last six months. that That hasn't stopped. However, I do want to emphasize that perhaps we're all a little bit misguided in focusing almost exclusively on these manufacturing leading indicators. They are important. They do tell us things about more than just their own sector, so I don't want to trivialize them in that sense. But it's interesting that when we look at some of the service sector metrics out there, they're holding together better anyhow, not perfectly, but better. And when we look at some of the consumer spending metrics, and that sort of thing actually they're looking pretty good and so as much as we do need to acknowledge manufacturing in decline for the moment and that does spill over
0: in all sorts of directions there are some parts of the economy out there that are still chugging along as well and and so uh so so let's get into that discussion on on interest rates because if we were sitting here a year ago and and just just we want to make sure we uh we record this that we're we're, we're having this discussion on uh, July 27th uh, 2019 so we're uh, next week the federal reserve will uh, will make an announcement on interest rates but if If we were sitting here a year ago, we would have been talking perhaps about how many times the Federal Reserve was going to raise interest rates in 2019 – and now we're looking at something completely different.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, it is quite remarkable when you put it that way, because exactly, I mean, rate hikes were happening quite aggressively just a year ago, less than that, in fact. And the expectation was there would be some continuation of that into 2019, possibly even into 2020. And that's simply not on right now. Uh, as, As you say, we're recording this just before what could be a cut, probably is a cut. And so let's not get too precise about that specifically, since the listeners already know all about that, perhaps. But in the end, the Fed has pivoted toward cutting. A number of rate cuts seem fairly likely at this juncture. Uh, Not inappropriate, I don't think, in the sense that growth has slowed and that's been a a change of sorts and financial markets have revealed a bit of their underbelly to the extent there was that sharp drawdown in stocks late last year since Undone but nevertheless revealing some vulnerability there. It is a slightly curious thing. In fact, one of the interesting things right now is what I would describe as a divergence between the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Federal Reserve because both apply very similar economic critiques. They both acknowledge their domestic economies are okay. They acknowledge global growth is slowing, that protectionism is a a bad thing. Uh, And and yet the Bank of Canada's conclusion is rates are unchanged for the immediate future and the, the U.S., conclusion is that rate cuts are appropriate. And without getting into the weeds too, too much and boring absolutely everyone, it really comes down to almost a a philosophical approach to monetary policy, as opposed to the things that these central banks are seeing. And so the Bank of Canada says, well, gee, we acknowledge, like everyone else, that perhaps there's a bigger than usual recession risk, but our most likely scenario by a considerable margin is still growth. And so we're going to position monetary policy for that continuation of growth. And the U.S. says something similar, except it says, gee, there's this Maybe thirty percent, or even thirty-five or forty percent chance of recession over the next year. And if that's true, uh, then we need to be in a position of, of of getting ahead of that and cutting rates, maybe even preventing that. Uh, and and so they're very much in the business of rate cutting. And again, it's not that the forecasts or the scenarios are different. It's more of a an emphasis on which scenario deserves the greatest attention right now.
0: Now, now, does this in any way speak to p- perhaps an overreaction? that people may have had to the uncompetitiveness of Canada relative to the U.S. that a lot of people were talking about over the last... Oh, year, 18 months?
1: Well, I mean, it's a great question. I would start by saying I I am certainly guilty of that as much as anyone else and looking at divergent tax rates and regulatory changes and these sorts of things. And so being somewhat concerned about Canada, to Canada's enormous credit, let's recognize actually growth was pretty darn good over the last few years. And a lot of the thanks goes back to the U.S. and that close economic relationship, of course. But Canada has held its own better than I and many would have thought. And so that's one of the reasons the Bank of Canada isn't immediately thinking of cut uh i i do think though that th- at least my bias right now is to think if we fast forward a year or even two years, I suspect the central banks of Canada and the U.S. will be more similar than different. I'm not saying the same amount of cutting or hiking, but I'm saying that I suspect the Fed doesn't get too, too far ahead of the Bank of Canada or, or vice versa. And so we will see some adjustment from one or the other, I suspect, over time. And one of the considerations for the Bank of Canada per competitiveness is that the Canadian dollar is, is you know, a little stronger than it was as of several months. Yeah ago, and, and that's a competitive challenge. And so sometimes you do want to keep up with the Joneses when it
0: comes to rate cuts, and we'll see if that does transpire over the it, rest it, of this it'll year. It'll be really interesting to watch. Now, we, we, we've been talking a little bit more about short-term rates mm-hmm. that, are, that, that are set by the central banks. What do you see down the curve? Because we've also seen from a year ago longer-term interest rates have come down significantly. Right. Is that something that's going to continue or do these rate cuts sort of steepen things up again and right. you start to see some movement at the long right. end? Right.
1: Well, I mean, classically, rate cuts do steepen things up a little bit. And so it's it's notable, at least as we record this, that U.S. three-month, 10-year spread has at least for a moment uninverted. And that was creating some trepidation. And the jury is still out on that. We'll see. It sure. may yet reinvert, And who knows? It'll keep bouncing back and forth, perhaps. Uh, but for the moment, yeah, we've seen some steepening again that would suggest that perhaps the growth outlook is a little bit better than it was. Mathematically, we can acknowledge that lower interest rates are less of an impediment to growth. So there's a bit of support coming into the economy from what central banks have done and how the bond market has reacted to that. But let's also acknowledge there is one other reason that longer-term bond yields are so, in fact, there are many reasons why longer-term bond yields are so low relating to slow speed limits on growth and lots of debt and just a habituation to low rates. Uh, but, But we can say perhaps uh, even even beyond that, and, and then looking at the low rates, it's because inflation expectations are quite tame right now. And so it's worth distinguishing there. Inflation itself is looking quasi-normal. I would say both for Canada and the US, not far from 2%, a little below for the US, but in the realm, a lot more normal looking than it did five or 10 years ago. And so nothing yes. overly concerning, I don't think. But inflation expectations for the more distant future, for five or 10 years from now, have, have drifted a little bit lower. And uh, and that's one of the things that's pulling nominal bond yields a little bit lower as well. And it's also probably one of the reasons why central banks are thinking about rate cuts, because their job is to keep inflation around too. And as much as a lot of it comes down to what's the price of oil and what's the price of vegetables and, and all these sorts of things, expectations can also be destiny when it comes to inflation. And if everybody's expecting no inflation, it's actually pretty hard to create some. And you know, despite Popular conviction to the contrary, it is useful to have a little bit of inflation, if only to keep you
0: away from the opposite thing, which is deflation. Uh, uh, absolutely. So, so let let let's just take a a quick scan of some other areas of the world, and and then let's get to your uh, this this fantastic piece on protectionism that you that you've written, uh, Europe. Also in the news uh, this week, around the the, the central bank saying they're seeing a deteriorating environment there. Uh, What do you see going on in Europe and the impact on, on on Canada?
1: Right. Well, I mean to begin with, I mean the European growth story, similar, in fact, really similar, almost everywhere right now, which is we've just seen economies grow less quickly, and it's disproportionately their manufacturing sectors that have gotten hit. And I didn't mention this earlier, but of course manufacturing is very trade-oriented, protectionism is at least part of that, that story. So that is also hitting Europe, even though Europe is not the region actively imposing tariffs. There's just been a chill, perhaps cast across trade more generally. Uh, beyond that, of course, some populism bumping around uh, in Italy, maybe most prominently, though Brexit fits into that category as, as well, I suppose, in the UK. Let's not pretend it's all negative politically, though, because you'll recall we were all so concerned about Greece on and off, and Greece has actually pivoted away from its populism government, back to a much more traditional government. So it's not a one-way street there, but there are still some issues. Uh, for the moment, I, I don't think there's, there's too much of a drag hitting Canada necessarily immediately from Europe, but it's just another place in the world that's moving a, a little bit less quickly. And we're going to have to watch Brexit in particular quite closely. That new British Prime Minister, yes. Boris Johnson, has... He's either putting on a very good bluff or he's very serious about this. But October 31st, that Brexit deadline, he said it's it's do or die. Either the EU gives him a new deal or he is out. And I must confess, and I was speaking with David Riley, my colleague at Blue Bay just today, and we were yeah, yeah. hashing this out. You know, it doesn't look that likely that the EU is going to blink here. And that doesn't mean that a bad, bad Brexit thing happens, but it does mean we could yet have confidence votes and we could have new elections and referendums. It's going to be a pretty rocky few months in terms of sorting out how this plays forward. And there is a higher risk than there was of a, a, a damaging Brexit outcome that has to be acknowledged at this point
0: in time. And the Halloween date just yeah, seems very to, uh, yeah, to, to right. fit it right in there or with the, uh, with Guy the- Fawkes day for them, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, uh, just uh, one, one very quick question before we, we move on. Uh, the the uh, emerging markets and uh, the, the well, kind of one of the untold stories of what's going on there, which is or, or not as focused on as the strength of the US dollar and, and the impact it's having on emerging markets. Yeah,
1: I mean, emerging markets don't particularly like a strong US dollar. Uh, the, you know, there are several reasons why, but at least one of them is just that many of them are borrowing in US dollars. And so when their currency is weakening. It means they essentially owe more money uh, effectively in U.S. dollars. And also, I should say, when the U.S. dollar is appreciating, uh, that encourages investors to put money into the dollar, takes away from other places. And so emerging markets don't don't get as much capital as they might otherwise get. So that, that is a challenge. I will say, though, going forward, we're not expecting the U.S. dollar to rally much, if at all, versus emerging market currencies or even versus a broader basket of currencies. And that's in part because we hear every single day American politicians prefer a weaker dollar, which is quite a new policy. You'll recall it used yeah, to always yes. be the strong dollar policy. And whether they really meant it or not, at least they spoke to that. And that's not the case right now. We have a US Federal Reserve in the business of cutting rates, it would appear. And I don't think there's too much else going against the US beyond that. But we can say from an emerging market specific perspective, we think those emerging market currencies are a bit cheap uh, at a minimum. So that might cease to be as much of a burden. Uh, let's celebrate that emerging market economies aren't confronting rising rates anymore. And so they're yes. happy about that as well, I think. Uh, you know, beyond that, it, it's a slower growth environment there too, to some extent. And China now trundles along at 6% instead of 65 or 7 which is still completely fine, but less than it was. Uh, but in general, again, they're moving forward from what we can tell and in some ways maybe a little bit less vulnerable to what's going on in the developed
0: world. Well, I'm going to look Forward to your research paper on the race to the bottom or the race to zero on currency, because that's a uh, that, that that's an interesting topic. Now, uh, we, we we'll transition into protectionism by by going to to, to China first. I, I, although let let's just say the the overall global economy B minus right now. I think
1: something like that. I mean, we were running along at a solid A there. I think yeah. in late in 2017, early 2018, and yeah, we're we're down to something like a B minus. It's not a disaster by any means. And China at six, and the U.S. at least as we record this, it recorded a a two. I mean, these are completely acceptable yeah. numbers that are not bad in any way, but they're not
0: exciting. So, so a yeah. grade like that makes sense. And, and then, and I guess this is the again, the, maybe the best place to transition into protectionism because. The, the Chinese economy and where are we sitting in China?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely. And so, of course, the Chinese discussion is much broader than that, but let's work our way toward protectionism. And so, to begin with, the Chinese economy was once upon a time growing at 10% plus a year, and now it's more like 6 So that is a significant deterioration that has come from a variety of sources. Some of it is just that globalization was naturally reaching the end of its rope because China was fully integrated into the global economy. They already had their fingers into all the various pies that one could reasonably aspire too. And Chinese demographics aren't great. In fact, they're fairly challenging, come to think of it. And so that that's a constraint on growth. Chinese competitiveness has deteriorated over time. And by the way, this is a completely natural outcropping of getting richer. When you're richer, it means wages are higher. And so you're not the, the low cost manufacturer anymore. The, the silver lining is there's now a consumer base in China that can buy products. And so it, it works out, but it does add up to less sustainable growth. So China's been slowing, but slowing in a pretty reasonable fashion and in a controlled manner and with policymakers making little adjustments as appropriate, and indeed they've delivered some stimulus this year. Uh, Of course, on top of that, we've had more of a cyclical issue, which is, well, we'll see if it's cyclical, I suppose, but which is protectionism. And so protectionism has come on. It, it's always made sense that the U.S.-China relationship would be the key one, in part key. because it's just the two biggest economies, but in part because you know if the underlying complaint in the U.S. is a trade deficit and China is responsible for, at last count, 61% of that trade deficit, it always made sense it would come down to this relationship. And whereas Canada and Mexico and maybe some others are distinctly smaller parties, and so can't really argue as fiercely and and are more vulnerable to to U.S. actions because of the the extent of the the trade reliance. That's less the case in China. Certainly big trade flows, but these are big economies with huge domestic markets and and pride to think about. And this is a hegemonic era. And so it's a tougher one to resolve on a number of counts, essentially. And, and, And it's tough not just because of the big deficit surplus. It's tough not just because they're two peers as opposed to maybe a a, a weaker and stronger party, but it's also tough because the U.S. complaints, they're not primarily about Chinese tariffs on U.S. cars. So That's one little complaint. They have much more to do with with big complaints about the structure of the Chinese economy and the the support that the government gives state-owned enterprises and intellectual property practices and big capital controls. And so, essentially, the U.S. ask is to completely revamp the Chinese economy. And you can imagine china not
0: immediately forthcoming no, not to that request about that. no yeah. exactly yeah. so well, well this 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 paper is just fantastic! I, you know, I was, I was I was reading it and there's an executive summary, a full report. We'll put the links up uh, attached to uh, to the podcast. And of course, if uh, if you follow Eric on Twitter, and I highly encourage you to do that, uh, he will uh, he he tweets the reports out as as he writes them, and he is a prolific and excellent writer. Uh, I normally read economics uh, decks to uh, to my kids before bed to get them to fall asleep, but I was getting so exciting reading this one that uh, it actually didn't work. They were uh, they were staying up. I encourage you. To dig into the full report, not the executive summary, but the executive summary is good. The the it, and 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 you really you talk about this before where we were this era of globalization, mm-hmm. and, and 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 lay that scenario out, and then but but you really think we're we're moving into a different era now, or at least it looks that way.
1: Well, I, th- I think so for for a couple of reasons. So some of it is unsurprising. In fact, we we could see it coming, and in fact, we wrote about some of this four or five years ago, just in the sense that. You know, globalization involves more trade and 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 more interaction across. You know, national borders, uh, it made, and it used to be, in fact, for many decades, we've seen trade grow twice as fast as the global economy has grown. So that's that's the intensification that's of trade. It's been yeah. quite remarkable, and yeah. prosperity, and these sorts of things have resulted w- w- with some downsides as well, but but more good than bad, most would agree. Uh, however, we're now in a world where, gosh, I mean, you know, the European Union's been around for a number of decades. They've already been mostly integrated, and, you know, NAFTA got introduced, you know, 25 plus years ago, and, Canada, U.S., and Mexico are trading quite a lot with each other as it happens. And the World Trade Organization absorbed China in the early 2000s, and the Iron Curtain came down in the early 1990s. These were all giant positive trade impulses, Uh, new billions of people suddenly available to work cheaply or to buy things, and and some variety of the two, and that drove globalization. And we we just don't have those things in the offing, even setting aside new tariffs. There isn't another region of a billion people uh, just waiting to be admitted into the global economy and to start buying and making things all of a sudden. And, and, and we enjoyed that for quite some time. And even though there are some trade deals, and you know, Europe has been a particular proponent and has had deals with Japan and Mexico and Canada, and of course there was that CPTPP deal with some Pacific yes, partners, yes. let's recognize that the low hanging fruits already been plucked for globalization. We already took the tariffs from 50% down to you know, 2%. And now we're talking about going from 2 to 1 and it doesn't have the same kind of, doesn't pack the same kind of punch. So some of it is just unavoidably the globalization, tailwind is fading, but of course, equally there is this headwind, which is so, the US so, and, so and a few trade, others. So is
0: for is, have, have we seen the best we're ever going to see and, and then how bad could it be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know that we've seen the best we're ever going to see. I mean, you, you can imagine there are still quite poor parts of the world that just aren't economically yes. relevant and they will get richer and they will help and, and benefit as well. And so, you know, India perhaps starting to, to, to uh, you know, reach that role and, and we all wait for Africa to do something similar. And so, no, I, th- I think there are plenty of ways this can work, but not maybe as, as explosively and beneficially as the last few decades. Uh, and, and again, the low-hanging fruit has been plucked for that for the moment. Uh, you know, when it comes to the tariffs specifically, I mean, you know, many of the tariffs being imposed by by the US are explicitly these temporary measures really meant to, to force other countries to change other rules. And so that, it's not meant to be a permanent condition. It's just meant to encourage behavior to yes. the US advantage. Uh, that's equally true of the US-China relationship. I think that the challenge there is, you know, we are now in this multipolar world, a world in which there are now two sheriffs in town, you might say, and we haven't seen that in a while. And historically, when you're in a multipolar era, there are frictions that stick around. And I'm not sure I'm quite saying the existing tariffs are going to stick around forever. In fact, I'm not sure that they will. uh, But, you know, frictions economically, militarily, uh, maybe culturally, and so on, probably more likely than not, and and more often going forward over the next few decades than we've seen over the last few decades. And so all else equal, there probably is going to be something of a a drag. Again, not to say all the current tariffs stick around forever,
0: though I must confess, Equally, we're not expecting those to go away in the next few months either. Sure, and I think one one time on on, uh, on, on one of these broadcasts, we'll have to we'll have to go through the uh, how how the world is really. On so many measures, a better place than it's ever been. Oh, absolutely. Um, e- even with this noise, because there, there's always a lot of focus on 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 some of the negatives and things, the challenges that we face. Right. Uh, but but overall, things just keep getting better and better.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, economies grow almost all the time, and and more importantly, GDP per capita grows almost all the time. That's your and my financial well-being. And of course, I think this is what you're really getting at. The non-financial well-being is growing even faster. And so you look at, at, at measures of longevity and infant mortality and other metrics of that sort of thing. And those are getting so much better, even in places that, that, that objectively aren't enjoying much economic growth. Yeah, so and, we, and we should I'm try to be
0: positive in, the, in the, you know, the short period of the year where the weather's nice in Canada and we can, uh, and we can really enjoy it. Well, it's always enjoyable spending time with you. And, and again, I, I just think this is a, for, for people who are watching the news, and concerned about protectionism and the the real impact that it has, and, and understanding the dynamics in play, this uh, this paper is just you're just a fabulous writer. So uh, it, it sounds like I'm just completely sucking up to you, but I really do mean it. it, it it's a uh, it's it's a great read, I, I, and I really hope that uh, that people uh, dig into it, as uh, as I know you spent so much time uh, putting it together. Well, thank you so much, and we'll see you in uh, in about three months. I would love it. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for listening to Personally Invested. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please email us at rbcgampodcasts at rbc.com.